0: Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co host, Dr. JJ Peterson. Hi, JJ. Hello, Don. JJ. Yes. You are about to hire a 24 year old. I am. Do you mind sharing your age? You're 42. Two. Yeah. I'm 47. So older and wiser Am than I 42? you. I'm 42.
1: I'm 43.
0: I know you. You do hit the age. Where you don't ever know.
1: <laughs> yeah, really, I'm 43. Yeah,
0: I'm already saying I'm 48. <laughs> I've been saying I'm 48 for six months. Yeah, I'm 47. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I turned 44 in just a couple weeks. So there has been
0: times when I'm like. I had to pull out my driver's license and count up.
1: I just did in my head. Did and you? I just was like, I was born in 1975. So I didn't yeah, I'm 43. actually pull out
0: my driver's license because <laughs> I know my birthday. Yeah. But you know what yeah, I mean? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other level <laughs> that of stupidity. Is, that is really scary. Wait, what year was I born? Who Not am I again? To, yeah. Jason Born is who? <laughs> yeah, it happened to me. Anyway, so, but let's say you're interviewing a 24 year old. 24 year old, yes. Versus yep. a 44 year old, someone your own age, two okay. different people. How are you different
1: or be honest? Yeah. Do
0: you interact with them differently?
1: Same position. It probably expectations would be a little bit different. Yeah. Um and even maybe the way I sold the company. Truthfully, like, you of know, because I think that. Tell me Because so for me, I always view it that when I go in for an interview that I'm in- interviewing that company just as much as they're interviewing me. Yeah. So I want them to sell me a little bit, yeah. like, you know, and so <laughs> why, I,
0: why are you good enough for yeah, me to work here? Yeah, he, I do the same thing. I put yeah. my feet up on the desk. <laughs> you remember Ben Affleck negotiating a yes, deal exactly. for, uh, in Goodwill Hunting? <laughs> yes. He's
1: just like, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> Retainer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With the water yeah, cash. Exactly. Beautiful scene. So I even view that when people come into to interview with us, like I'm like, all right, so I want to learn about you, but I also want you to learn about us. Right.
0: Now, this is with the younger person? Both. both. Oh, you're doing that with both. Yeah, okay. both younger and older. Is there any
1: differentiation? Yeah, I do think so, because at, say, 42, 43, you're talking about... They're usually towards the top end of their career, right? So there's not necessarily looking for huge advancements. They're probably looking at, to step up from where they were last job. I want to show them it's a step up from there. But you're talking about security, longevity. You're going to be a part of influence here and all of those kind of things. With the younger, you're I think you're actually really talking about – I would probably talk a little bit about purpose and community that you're getting yeah. when you're coming here. Opportunity to advance connecting your skills to growth and those kind of things. And I so I think I would approach it just a little bit differently. A lot of it's the same, but a little bit differently about what is the value that the company brings. Because I think even value is different depending on yeah. what age you're coming in at. You know,
0: it's interesting. I recently was talking to somebody in their 50s and trying to, you know, really convince them to come on board, Yeah, I realized I'm doing this completely differently. I'm talking about impact. I'm talking about leverage. Legacy. I'm, talking about, I'm talking about legacy. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about how powerful you're going to be to help us. I'm yep. actually talking about how we need you as a mentor and a coach. Yeah. And if somebody's in their 20s, I'm talking about the fact you can bring your dog to work. Yes. I'm talking yeah. <laughs> about the fact that we'll pay for your therapy. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about the fact that we do events together where we get on a bus and go to another city and go to a ball. Game and that culture and community is really important for us. Yeah. And, uh, which it's,
1: both are true. Th- both are true. <laughs> yeah.
0: And the reality is probably the, person in their 50s, they would actually love that too. Yeah. But because they come from this generation that I'm just in the trail end of, it's about making money. It's about the yeah. bottom line of not just money for ourselves, but being impactful in the in the economic system. Yeah. It's tweaked a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to go on about it because I actually talk in the interview, I, I talked to Lindsay Pollack. She wrote a book called The Remix. And she's basically a translator for our generation to millennials and back. I love it. Yeah, and it's wonderful. And so I go into how much I love working with millennials. I absolutely prefer it. Uh, none, because, none taken.
1: But <laughs>
0: <okay>. <laughs> well, you act like a millennial. Let me give you, come on. Let's be honest. Uh, and so it's just wonderful. I, but listen, if you get it wrong, if you can't speak their language, you know, you're going to burn them out, you're going to break their hearts, and you're just not going to get the kind of productivity. I think you can get more productivity out of millennials than you can out of my generation in general if you interact with them the right way. Yeah. And some of us have been stepping on toes for a while, and we kind of need a little bit of a wake-up call and a little bit of like a how do you do it, Yeah. you know, a methodology. Yeah. And so Lindsay Pollack gives us that. Her book, again, is called The Remix. She's worked with Capital One, Hyatt Place, Levi, Sprint, just a ton of big companies helping them figure this out. And Can you imagine some of the conversations <laughs> that she real. has had
1: to have. Oh,
0: my goodness. Um, she, I found her to be wonderful. I'm not going to wait any longer. We need to get right to it before we lose our millennial workforce. <laughs> Here's my conversation with Lindsay Pollack. Lindsay Pollack, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Don.
0: I think our listeners are really going to love this. You've been called a translator, and I'm guessing a translator from... Sort of my generation, I'm 47 to the generation behind me, and maybe even, I don't know, what, what would you call a generation, but the generation behind them. My company is full of 20 somethings, and I absolutely love it. But I was realizing the way my company culture works and the first company they ever worked for, you know, 20 years ago, are completely different. I mean, we never had even christmas parties we never had we never hung out and went to happy hour and you walk into my office and people are here all the time morning noon night doesn't matter there's dogs everywhere we're getting on buses and going to baseball games we're huge on culture things have shifted and if we haven't shifted with it we're going to get left behind aren't we
2: yeah, it's funny. I'm glad to hear that you're having a positive experience. I don't always get that feedback. So that's really, really good to hear. It's funny. I had a similar experience in my first job. I'm pretty sure we had a Christmas party, but but that was about it. That That's just the way the workplace was. I'm a Gen Xer too. I'm 44. So it was sort of stunning to me when I started working with students originally on college campuses that they really had completely different expectations. And I couldn't agree with you more. If you're able to adapt to them, you can be extraordinarily successful and, frankly, enjoy your workplace a little bit more than many of us did when we started our careers.
1: I
0: certainly love my job, and I love the professional challenge of it. I'm talking about 20 years ago with that publishing company I started working with. But I didn't buy into that company or that vision the way the 20 somethings in my office do. I mean, it really is just a part of their private lives and their career lives are all sort of intermixed and intertwined. There's hardly a a difference between them. And I love the buy in that I get from the generation behind me. You talk in your book about generational understanding. And can you frame that? Are we really speaking different languages? And do we really have different cultural values? Or is it just, you know, come on, it's just the new modern workplace we all have smartphones, but we're basically the same people?
2: So it's a great question. And yes, we are all human beings. I do not ever want to make the argument that we are all so different as generations. And we are all members of families. So we all understand how you can be very similar to people, but grow up in very different times, right? So that's kind of a shared experience. So a couple of things are different about now. Number one, I think we all as humans want the same things. When I started out, I wanted feedback. I wanted managers who cared about me. I wanted to enjoy my job and feel mission-driven. I just usually didn't get it, and I didn't really say anything when I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's different now is that I think young people want what all of us have always wanted, and, and frankly, good managers have always done. When I think of my best managers, they did push mission, and they did give me feedback. But we just didn't hold leaders accountable. And now that we live in times when you have ratemyprofessor.com and Glassdoor and Yelp and social media and all these mechanisms. People have
0: a voice and they use it. People
2: can say it. Absolutely. So I, I don't think the difference is in what we want. I think the difference is what we expect to get and whether or not we're willing to leave organizations that don't provide it.
0: I'm going to throw a wrench into the works here. I remember talking to Simon Sinek and I asked him, You know, he has a really beautiful idea that he espouses about that a workplace should be a family, and you would never just fire one of your kids. And I actually asked him, kind of as an aside, I said, how much do you think that the overwhelming embrace of your ideas come from the fact that we have dysfunctional families? In other words, (laughs) the, the family is so broken and dysfunctional now that people aren't getting the nurturing that they need. Therefore, they're you know, looking for it from their boss. And so one of the things that we say at my company is, we are not a family, we are like a family. And I make that distinction to say, I may have to let you go. There are still kind of rules here. You know, how much of this is sort of coping mechanisms for dysfunction? And where do we draw the line between this sort of close navigating, you know, nurturing relationships with each other, which in a way are really beautiful and wonderful, and also this need to sort of hold people accountable?
2: I look at it from the perspective of junior people and older employees. So that sort of parent-child dynamic, I think is sort of my entry point to answer you. And I think that a lot of young people are tremendously close with their parents. MTV did a study that found that 57% of millennials say that a parent is their best friend. Part of it is social media, right? That you can texting and and digital media and, and mobile technology where you can text your parents all the time, right? And be completely connected. Some people call it helicopter parenting, but the fact whether you criticize it or not, is that young people are close with their parents, but they're also close with their teachers and their coaches. and
0: So they're just close with everybody. It's not a dysfunctional family thing.
2: Well, sure, there are dysfunctional relationships all over, but I, I think the opportunity or the angle to think about in the workplace is that young people come in generally assuming that their boss is going to have their best interests in mind, that their boss is going to be a coach, right, and a leader. And what we find, if you look at something like Google's Project Oxygen that studies what makes effective managers in a a very, very data-driven way that all of us respond to managers who care about us and spend one-on-one time with us and try to coach us to be their best. So I think the advantage here is you don't have young people coming in assuming that their boss is their adversary, right, or their enemy, which I think was kind of the message in the you know, 50s, 60s and 70s, uh, maybe even 80s. So yeah, there's dysfunctional relationships all over. Every millennial doesn't have a close relationship with their family. But I wouldn't push so far as to say that you have to drive the family message. But I think the message that your manager cares about you, and is on your side, and you're on the same team is really, really important. So you know, I know we're kind of splitting hairs here, but I'm with you. I don't think that the workplace is a family. But The fact that your boss can care about you, I think, is a really positive development in the workplace. Well,
0: I've found that to the degree I care, and we do things like we pay for everybody's therapy. Like if you need to go see a therapist or if you want to see a therapist every week, just turn in your receipt and we'll pay for it. And you can take a week off and go to this therapeutic retreat center, which actually kind of is hilarious if you think about it. Because if you get a job at Storybrand, I'll pay for your therapy. I don't exactly know <laughs> that that's how we want to say it. But the return on investment on that sort of quote unquote kindness, and I would just consider it, hum- you know, just being humane, is just incredible. It, it really is just incredible. And I wish we could go back in time 20 years and sort of instill some of those policies. With our generation and watch and see if they would have the same effect. I have a feeling they would. Um, now I think they're almost, they're a little bit expectations. Okay, I'm gonna get into the heart of your book. The title of the book is The Remix: How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. And everybody listening, probably, you know, most of them are about mine and your age, and they probably have a small workforce of people who are in their 20s. So we all need to understand this. Give me some tenets of things that we can do to sort of nurture and get the most out of our workforce.
2: So the broad message is the title of the book, The Remix. It's based on the idea of a remix song. And we all know a remix song is when you take a classic and you don't say the classic is wrong or bad or should be thrown away, but you mix in modern elements or change it in some way to modernize it. And that's exactly my vision for the workplace. I love that. Right. It's taking the classics, the fundamentals that are really good. This is not about throwing out everything we've always ever done. Keep the best of previous generations' practices. For example, mentoring, apprenticeship, right? Uh, Having a good business model, right? Some
1: of the things that I think some
2: companies have gotten away from. And then the modern elements is saying, okay, where could we use some changes? Where could we add or subtract or adapt with ideas from? The new generation. So, you know, a really simple example of a remix is if you have town halls, right? And you're the the CEO of a small company, and you like to make videos of your town halls. Well, some of your employees of different generations would really like to do that in person. Some people would really like to do that by video. Some people would actually like you to put it in an audio format where I could watch it or listen to it at two times the speed because I'm really busy and I like things fast, right? The content stays the same. But the delivery mechanisms, the options that you provide, not only serve different generational preferences, but I might be a millennial who just happens to like in person, or I could be a baby boomer who really, really loves to watch videos. So you're sort of acknowledging. You
0: talk about this in the book. You say offer options and choice. Yes. Yeah. Go meet people wherever they are, speak their language, be in their you know, culture somehow.
2: And not unlimited options and choice, but think about something like employee benefits, something like covering mental health. Well, if I am not somebody who chooses to see a therapist, maybe I have other options that you'll cover my gym or a different element of my health so that you say to me, I care about you and what you care about. This is why some really progressive companies, 4%. Of large corporations are giving people the choice now between matching their four hundred and one k contributions or matching their student loan debt repayments. Right? Oh, I saying, love that. We want to meet you where we are. Right?
0: Man, I think we're going to try to figure that out here. Okay, chime in on this, and I think you and I would have an interesting discussion about it. Elizabeth Warren is trying to get elected president, and one of her major, you know, tenets is I want to pay off your college debt. And then we there was just a speaker at a college the other day the commencement speaker. Smith. yeah and he's a billionaire right and he and mm-hmm. in his commencement speech he said, I want to pay off your college debt, okay and Lindsay feel free to get mad at me push back, I'm learning here too but I did not have positive reactions to either of those messages and here's why, because what you have is a college that I think is charging too much for the education, you have some sort of bank or. Company, loan company that is loaning them the money and then charging them an exorbitant rate that they can't pay off. Those two things are, in my opinion, wrong. They're legal, but they're wrong. And then when the government comes in and says, so what we're going to do is pay off your college debt, you're actually enabling the wrong structure that created this problem in the first place and doing nothing to fix it. To me, it's like, no, you actually have to create some sort of college system that goes around the university system, offers a better education for cheaper so that nobody has to get into debt. That's what the government should be working on. Then you actually fix the problem. Because as soon as you pay off all of this debt, the school and the bank goes, awesome, let's raise our prices because these people are being bailed out. That's part of the problem. Then the other part of the problem, you have a bunch of students who say, you know what, if I sign a bad contract and then I get myself into financial trouble, I can get out of it. Somebody will bail me out. I'm having trouble seeing why this is a good thing. Can you talk me out of that?
2: No, <laughs> I don't disagree. However, you know, I think that there are generations, or even just certain years, of people who get caught in the worst of times. Right, so they have the most pressure to get a college degree, and the most predatory lending, you know, and difficult,
0: ridiculous predatory lending. It's awful. right,
2: and the most difficult recessions and you know, great recession times to graduate. So. I could not agree with you more that the system is broken and I think there is a certain cohort of people who got stuck in the worst of the worst situations and if we have the means to help them in any way, uh, similar to people who received predatory, you know, mortgages and, you know, had some relief that I don't think it's perfect. And there are a lot of people who are quite critical. Well,
0: it's a great connection because the next generation who's just being straddled with college debt is truly too big to fail and too important to fail. I think the banks and the university should pay for it. I don't think the taxpayers should have to pay for it.
2: I don't disagree, but they're not. You yeah,
0: know? they're I don't not going disagree. to. Well, I say we just – you and I, Lindsay, let's get together and and create an online university, and we'll make it dirt cheap, and then people can just go to our school. Let's do that.
2: Okay, yes, and I'll tell you what's interesting is the reaction of Generation Z, who are those who are coming after the millennials, born 1997 and later. So they're 22 and younger, just graduating from college. They are starting to question – college degrees and considering alternate programs and considering not going to college. So, I mean, in my lifetime of four decades, I don't ever remember anyone questioning college as the right path. So I think we are starting to see a generation question it. And if that puts enough pressure on universities that can make a change. But I I just have to say, I have tremendous empathy for the kids who felt that they didn't have a choice and took on these loans and are in really big trouble. I think it's, you know, I'd love to see a national service program that wipes out the debt. You know, I'd love to see creativity around this issue. You know, one billionaire paying for it is a nice story. But you know, it's not going to solve the problem.
0: There's a big bank in New York that recently released a press release saying, you no longer need a college degree to apply here. And I think if a company like Amazon.com, if anybody at Amazon is listening to be able to say, you do not need a college degree to apply here. And here's why. I can learn some of the best coding that I need online. I can learn some of the best business management that I need online. I can learn some of the best marketing techniques that I need online. I think we need a way to sort of certify these people so that they can come with something that isn't accredited and say, look, uh, give me a shot. And I think if a few large companies would join in and do that, that's how we solve the college debt problem. I don't think we solve it by paying off debt. Although you're right, too big to fail. We can't let these guys fail. Okay, let's get back on track. You have a a few things that you talk about when you're talking about remixes, and one of them is the talent remix. And you say, when we're recruiting, we need to rethink expectations of whom we recruit. Does the not having a degree, is that part of the rethinking expectations?
2: Absolutely. And I list some of those banks that you mentioned. LinkedIn is another company where you no longer are required to have a college degree to apply. But it goes beyond that. It I sort of talk about, remember when we first realized that men could be nurses, and it was sort of <laughs> yeah. this revelation? I think industries are starting to rethink or remix The age of a person who can do a certain job. So the example I tell in the book, which I just loved, was a story of lifeguarding. Which is that we've always kind of made the assumption that lifeguards are going to be teenagers. Well, what's happened is a lot of teenagers don't want to be lifeguards anymore. They want to go for more education. They want to have internships in the summer. So all these pools were having trouble filling their lifeguarding jobs. And so they said, you know, whoever made a law that it had to be a teenager. So this uh, municipal pool in Galveston, Texas started. Hiring retirees as lifeguards because they were in great shape. Yeah. They wanted the job, you know, they wanted to stay fit. And and they said the joke was they said, and they can drive themselves to work. So that's, you know, (laughs) for everybody. But think about that. Why does a lifeguard have to be a teenager? You know, I do a lot of work in the investment banking world, and they hire a bunch of young people out of college to be analysts, and then a lot of the analysts leave, they don't want to do the job. Why can't an analyst be a 47-year-old who's really, really data-driven, enjoys the job, is willing to work long hours for a phenomenal salary? You know, who said that had to be a stepping stone job? And I think a lot of industries, insurance is having a lot of trouble recruiting young people. So they're starting, they started a big campaign, a lot of competitors in the insurance industry banded together and said, we should promote insurance as a second career that people who've done something else and want to reskill and do something that can take them through the next half of their lives should consider our industry. So I'd also encourage 20-somethings with their own small businesses to think of hiring people in their 50s to bring that gravitas into their companies. We tend to hire people like us, and this has always been a diversity problem, Mm -hmm. but we rarely talk about the age issue. So I just encourage, especially small business owners like us, What value could you get from just totally rethinking the kind of person or the age of the person that you are trying to attract to a particular job?
0: Well, sort of broadening our perspective on the age of the person that we're going to hire is awesome. You also talk about in the remix, the need to explain why we're doing what we are doing. And- you know, it gets back to Simon Sinek's great work in terms of always start with why, which we hear that everywhere. Why is it so important that people know the reason behind our decisions? So it's funny,
2: we all take it for granted. And I agree, Simon Sinek is a really big reason he popularized that word a little bit. But I think it's human nature, right? Studs Terkel did a book in the 1970s about how people want to work for companies where they feel tied to the mission. And we got away from that. But again, I think it's human nature. People want to know that their work matters. And two quick examples. Examples: um, KPMG did a program called the Purpose Project, where they asked people, "What do you do at KPMG?" Not, "I'm an accountant," but, "What's the broader purpose of your job?" So, one young woman who helped companies with tax credits for uh, building programs in the United States, she said, "I'm not an accountant. I keep jobs in America. That's the work that I do." And they started posters and an online campaign. KPMG has 27,000 employees. They received 40,000 stories Wow! because people were so eager to talk about it. They jumped out of the big four, their competitive set, to number one wow. on the Fortune best companies to work for list because they tied people to purpose. These simple moments. Another example, I was working with a group of young bankers who were really disgruntled, and I did some focus groups. And they said, look, I understand that my job is to do grunt work. I understand I'm the low person on the totem pole. Just tell me why I'm doing it. Just (laughs) when you give me an assignment, tell me that the client asked for it or tell me that it's going to go to the CEO. Don't make me feel like a cog in the wheel. And I think millennials are under a lot of pressure, you know, with all these icons of young business and all these startups and billionaires in their 20s and seeing it all on social media every day. They want to feel like their work is contributing to something. And I think that's the best thing about them. I I can't even believe when CEOs say to me, like, oh, these kids, they want to make a difference. I'm like, why are we considering that a bad thing? I think that's phenomenal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how I feel, too. Not a bad thing at all. And I just think they want a mission. They absolutely want a mission. How dare I, they? How yeah, how dare they? they? I'm like, what, what's, yeah, what's <laughs> negative about wanting a mission? And, you know, the real gist of it is it's up to you and me to actually be the sort of people who are on a mission because... If you aren't on a mission, you are not going to attract the next generation, and so you and I have to figure out our mission. Okay, there's another tenet of this, and you've kind of got a bunch of ideas here. One is that primarily it's been a top-down sort of authoritarian structure, and you are recommending a more transparent two-way communication. You actually talk about the importance of being a coach, and you talk about the importance of good listening, be a really good listener. Can you sort of put all that together for me and say, what sort of people do we need to be as 40 somethings leading 20 somethings? I
2: can. And the way to think about it is just to think about social media. I Mm. mean, you can just draw a direct line between the days when, you know, the president, the CEO, the Pope, you know, had a voice and all the rest of us listened and followed because there was no other way to hear us. And now on social media, every conversation is two way. When you grow up, Being able to tweet at world leaders and celebrities. How could you possibly feel connected in an organization when you're not allowed to talk to your boss's boss? It just doesn't make any sense. And so this is the one where I sort of talk tough to leaders and say, like, this ship has sailed. <laughs> you have yeah. no choice, you know. But again, good leaders have always done it. Think of the 1970s MBWA, management by walking around, you know. <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about. And I'm really, really, really deliberate in the book and when I do coaching and speeches. I'm not saying total transparency. There is still information that is proprietary. There are still things you can keep confidential, but where can you be 5%, 10% more transparent? Where can you share with your employees what's happening at the top levels of the company? Where can you have more ask me anything sessions and town halls? Where can you put out more memos to let people know where the business is headed? Again, not total transparency, just more because if I can go on Wikipedia or Google, or Yelp, and find out more about my employer than I feel like they're telling me, I am totally <laughs> alienated and uninterested, right? Yeah. And and that, again, I don't think is just millennials. I think that's all of us.
0: I'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Lindsay Pollack in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about how do you actually change somebody's mind? If somebody disagrees with you, how would you change their mind? Well, I answer that question at businessmadesimple.com. You can subscribe to a daily video in which I answer a question that will help you make more money, save more money, or advance your career. And in business, we just have to change people's minds all the time. Here's the reality. You don't even have to get the video. You can't change somebody's mind. You have a high percentage chance of changing their mind, however, if you realize, one, you can't do it and two, they're gonna be very defensive because they like their mind and they don't want you to change it, come in there and change it. So there's just a two-step formula. One of the steps is you affirm their identity and you actually say you are right about this aspect of what you're talking about. And then the second step is to say, here's my view. And you just leave your view on the table for them to interact with, but you don't try to enforce it on them. That doesn't mean you're going to change their mind, but it's pretty much the only shot you've actually got of changing their mind. Here's what I say at the end of that video, I say this, your position has to somehow affirm their identity or they will not adopt your position. Your position has to affirm their identity or they will not adopt your position. If you think that's interesting, go to Business Made Simple because you can get a video teaching you something like that every single weekday, Monday through Friday, first thing in the morning, you can actually watch a three to five minute video that teaches you something that is going to make you more money save you more money or advance your career that day just go to simple.com and subscribe today can you give me an example of what it would be like for a ceo to be more transparent is it more than just here's the company's goals and objectives and here's why we're doing it is it also Here's where we're struggling as a company. Here's where I'm struggling as a CEO. Do we need to get that transparent? How far is too far? And in, in what category are you talking about? We need to be transparent.
2: Well, I think it's still your personal choice. And frankly, if right. everyone in America just did the former of what you're talking about, we'd be in a lot better shape, right? So just here's where we're going.
0: <laughs> and here's why we're going there. Here's
2: where we're going. Here's why we're going there. Here's where we are. Here's what's happening. You know, I think personal stories, something that's happening on a lot of college campuses and going back to that mental health issue, and I just applaud you because it's just such a huge, huge challenge for young people today, is a lot of colleges realized that kids felt like they had to be perfectionists, right? The FOMO, the fear of missing out, the social media perfection. And so some colleges, particularly very elite schools, did programs on failure where like the president of the university or the top professors would say, you know what, I failed my first physics test. Or the first time I tried to get my PhD, I failed my orals or mm. I got a terrible score on my GRE and saying I'm human, too. And so I think there's two levels. There's transparency about the company and what's happening. And frankly, I think a lot of that is just talking about anything at all. I don't care if it's good or <laughs> bad or, yeah. or what have you. And the second is personal transparency. I think there are things that people tend to say in their retirement speech or their retirement dinner about what mattered to them, why they do the work that they do, how important the company is. And we don't talk about that all the time. And so I would really just start with some of the basics. Most people are so private and not transparent or fearful of being open That, again, any information that personalizes you and makes people feel part of the company is enough. You know, one example is, let's say you have your big uh, annual meeting. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say everything that happened, but tell people who was there what you were most proud of, some of the questions that you got. You know, anything that makes them feel a little bit more connected.
0: Yeah, behind the scenes. Exactly. You want to show them behind the curtain. Exactly. Gosh, I love that. Okay, there are two more categories that I'm really interested in talking about. One of them is modular spaces and remote work options. Why is this generation, next generation, so interested in having this sort of autonomy and this ability to work from anywhere?
2: So I think they're interested in it because of technology, because they have always had the ability, right? I mean, we just couldn't. I couldn't do my work except when I was at my desk. So first is just simply the ability. And by the way, that's why 60% of companies offer some form of remote work. And it is not just millennials taking advantage. It's all of us. However, there, it's such a myth that millennials all want to work from home. They don't. Is. Work is really social. It is. Work is really social. It's where you meet people. So they don't want to work from home. And again, it's sort of this like black and white argument that either everyone wants to be at work all the time at their desk or everybody wants to be at home. There's yeah. a huge middle ground. And that's where the word flexibility is what's so important. And again, 5% flexibility, 10% flexibility. I worked at the call center. Oh, we can't do flexibility. And I said, well, don't they do any paperwork? And they said, well, yeah, they have a couple hours of paperwork a month. How about doing that from Starbucks (laughs) or from home, right? There's always something that you can do. Millennials don't want to work from home. They just don't want to work from the office every minute. So I don't even like the phrase work from home or telecommuting. I like remote, which is that you could just be in another desk at another office, down in the coffee shop, because we all do that anyway. And I agree with you, case-by-case basis, but we have to allow some form of flexibility because the ship has sailed. I mean, go to any Starbucks or co-working space or library, we are so afraid that everyone's going to suddenly go into chaos it's not it's just a little bit more flexibility and and often asking people what do you really want we fear that people want to work from home 4 days a week when really they want to leave an hour early to go to a soul cycle class you know that's often <laughs> yeah what flexibility is about
0: And you get so much loyalty and passion in return for that You're absolutely right with my workforce we were having to buy a new office it was going to be very expensive we sort of put a test out and said do we want to just not buy this office and have a kind of place that people can come to when they need to, but not set aside desks for everybody? Let's just do the work remote and then eight or 10 of you can work in a small space whenever we need to get together. And they came back and said, no, we want an office. The other thing that we actually said was, how do you feel about unlimited paid time off? Literally, you just have to approve it and you can have as much vacation as you like, as long as you're getting your work done. And they also came back and said, No, I know. I'm so glad to hear that. Isn't that weird? Yes. They wanted two weeks and they wanted to know when they could guilt-free take a vacation and when they could. And I just kind of went, you know, that makes complete sense. I would actually want the, because there's no way I'm taking a vacation if you give me unlimited paid time off without feeling like I'm robbing somebody, you know?
2: Don, I'm so glad you brought that up. There are so many myths. It's the same myth you brought up, um, open office space, right? Yeah. We've gone too far. Unlimited vacation, totally open office space, everybody working from home, it's too extreme. It's too black and white again. So people want choices and flexibility with boundaries. And so I think not being draconian, you you know, in your vacation policy is a good thing, but you know, exactly what you said, when people have unlimited vacation, they either take too much or they take none. There was a a story at Netflix that they gave people a year up to a year of um, maternity leave and paternity leave with your discretion. And everybody took a year and that wasn't their intention. So they changed the policy to say you can have up to a year, but the average person takes four months. And guess how much people started (laughs) to take? Four months, right? We want to know where the boundaries are otherwise yeah. there's just too much uncertainty and i think millennials in particular simply because they're new to the workplace and just don't have a lot of experience yeah. really want those guardrails so i'm so glad to hear you say that because that's absolutely been my research and experience as well
0: it's true in almost everything it's true in health and fitness <laughs> it's true in, in developing ourselves we want freedom and then we want really hard suggestions yeah, like, about what how would you do with this M&Ms. like that does not
2: mean anything <laughs> to me give me a number of m ms that i can eat in moderation exactly. Exactly. Right.
0: <laughs> Don, you can eat all the M&Ms you want. We recommend 7. <laughs> then I'm going to eat 8. I guarantee I'm going to eat 8. Lindsay, finally, and this is my favorite. We need to remix our understanding of education and development. And we need to understand that people want to be lifelong learners. You know, I interacted with Mark Miller who wrote a book called Talent Magnet, and they put millions into research on what top talent wants in a company. And they want a better boss. They want a bigger vision, which you, we've talked about here, and they want a brighter future. And brighter future specifically is about development. They want to be more valuable on the open market when they leave your company than they were when they came in. They want you to continue to educate them. Can you tell me where this need and desire is coming Because I love that. And can you tell me where it's coming from?
2: I love that too. And what I most love about it is that is the most multi-generational policy you can implement. Every single generation wants and needs training because I think that the driver for that is the times we live in, that we are in such volatile, uncertain times where all you hear about every day in the news is companies being disrupted, industries going out of business, robots are going to take your job. So what has more currency, an extra thousand dollars in salary or a skill that you can list on your LinkedIn profile that's going to help you get your next job, whether you're 22 or you're 57 and just got laid off. It's absolutely critical today that people feel that they have a skill set that is going to make them valuable. And, you know, it's the old argument that companies say, well, why are we going to train them if they're only going to leave anyway? Well, companies need people to train if they stay because every, you know, the inside of companies are changing as well. So I think training is a win-win across the board. And interestingly, PwC did a study where they asked millennials in particular, but I think it resonates, well, what kind of training do you want? And the answer was mentoring and coaching. So you don't even have to implement a really expensive training program, although I recommend that you listen to podcasts and read business books, right, (laughs) because I think that's always going to be valuable. However having good leaders who coach you and invite apprenticeship and mentor, you know, your own people can be the greatest source of training you provide. It doesn't necessarily mean implementing a new training and developments program or strategy. It's just about emphasizing a culture of learning.
0: And to those people who say, why would I develop somebody who's just going to leave anyway? I would actually argue, and I believe it's true, it's true here at our company, that if you develop them, they are much more likely to stay, and they're statistics. That they're not going to go. Yeah. yeah, they're not going to go to some other company that doesn't put anything into them. I think you know part of the problem is that we've recognized this at our company. I'll put a hundred thousand dollars plus for our twenty-person company into developing our people this year, and that involves flying facilitators out for one-day workshops, shutting down the company for a day. We're all getting on. Uh, Two rockstar buses here pretty soon and heading to Savannah, Georgia to study customer service at a Savannah Bananas game. It's just all sorts of fun stuff. But then, you know, if I go to a restaurant and I say you should be developing your people like I am, they say, "Don, you have a 50% profit margin. We have a 2% profit margin. We're not going to be able to do this." And we developed something called Business Made Simple. Right now, it's just a daily coaching video that goes out. Anybody can sign up for it. But in November, it's actually going to be an online business university of really practical courses. And it's gonna cost 275 bucks. I mean, it is dirt cheap. And the only reason we did it is because I realized nobody's developing their people because it's too expensive. They can't do it. And yet everybody's hungry for to learn, to learn, to learn. I think the market is just ripe for this, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens.
2: Well, that's great for small business owners, too, who just really can't afford some of the best speakers. So I applaud that. I think that's fantastic.
0: Lindsay, you were wonderful, and thanks so much for coming on. The book is called The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. You know, if you think about just perusing this book and just one or two little things, that you can learn about the language of not just people who are younger than us, but people who are older than us, and connecting with them is going to have incredible return on your investment. Lindsay, th- your work is so important. Thanks for coming on and sharing it with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for being a good example for our fellow Gen Xers.
0: J.J., I love millennials. I do, too. I'm not just saying that because uh, they're going to pay my Social Security. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying well, we saying love, that we love
1: our millennials.
0: Here's the thing. They're not changing. Yeah. And if you learn to speak their language and invest in them, you will get an enormous return on that investment. Yep. And so Lindsay's up to something here. I think her stuff is really important. Well, listen, everybody, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose, noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to make a millennial happy.